The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It really is a, a privilege for me to be before you once again proclaiming the word. Um, and I, I, it, it really is, uh, whether I'm uh, on stage leading in worship or proclaiming the word or praying or whatever, this is a huge privilege to be able to um, be among you and to be encouraged by the Bible um, together. So we're marching through the book of Acts, <clears throat> and as Dave said last week, we continue to see strange story after strange story. So there's encounters with demons, there's riots like we saw last week where no one really knows what they're doing there and why they've come together. There's miracles that are happening all over the place, and in this week's text, we see people even being raised from the dead. And what, what an incredible book this is. And I say that word, incredible, in the most literal sense. Right, this, this book could seem not credible, especially to modern people. It could seem not credible that all of these things that seem so crazy to us almost far-fetched, actually happened. <laughs> I just don't want us to forget that. These things actually happened. And yet, it's not, it's not like the world that we see around us, right? It, it certainly doesn't seem like the American church when we look out across the landscape. And yet, time and time again, what we're seeing is that these are real people that are giving real accounts of things, of things that they've seen firsthand with their own two eyes. And these people who have seen these things are willing to give everything for the continued spread of the gospel. So that's what we're going to see in our text today. This is a text that points to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ over everything else in the world, including our very lives. And to me, that's the craziest thing that we've seen in the book of Acts. It isn't the miracles, it isn't the resurrections, it isn't the power encounters with demons. The craziest thing in this book isn't any of those things. The craziest thing is that there is a growing number of people spreading out all over the ancient world who are willing to give up everything. They're willing to give up their power, their wealth, their comfort, even their very lives for the sake of the greatest treasure in the entire universe, Jesus Christ. That's an absolute miracle in and of itself, right? So the question for us right away, right off the bat here today, as we dig into this text, it's a very simple one. And it's one that we've been asking over and over and over again as we've been marching through the book of Acts. What is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? And I know we hear that all the time, but really ask it. Really ask it of your heart. If you're tired of hearing that question for yet another week, <laughs> what are you treasuring? What are you worshiping? What are your idols? Don't blame us, blame Luke. <laughs> because what he's trying to do is to show us over and over and over again that Jesus came and lived and died and he was raised to new life and sent his spirit to empower a people who recklessly laid down their lives for the cause of Jesus. 
and all of the miracles and all of the power encounters and these wild stories that we're reading are meant to show the power and worth of Jesus Christ because he really turns lives upside down. He really does. He really brings new life where there is only death. And no matter what we face because of following him, no matter what you're going through, he really is worth it. So, now that I've already preached the sermon, let's dive into the text and see it for ourselves yet again. So look with me. We'll start in verse 1 with just these first few words. After the uproar ceased, okay? So remember what had just taken place last week. Dave showed us last week all about this riot that happened where people's idols were threatened. Do you remember that? And not just the physical idols, the actual statues but the idols of the heart, of comfort and of security and power and money and all the things that they were and we functionally worship in our hearts, even if we say differently. He really brings new life to a heart that is prone to worship idols, right? John Calvin says, certainly the human heart is an idol factory. That's true. That's true of you and that's true of me. Now, I want to come back to this right at the end. So we're going to put a pin in this and I want to draw a parallel from a detail in the riot from last week in our text in this week. So just be anticipating that at the end of the service. We're going to come back and look at the riot one more time real briefly. But let's keep going. For the first point here, Jesus can do it. Jesus can do it. So after this riot, Paul sets sail and he continues his travels throughout the region, facing threats and plots against him, and eventually he lands in Troas. And starting in verse 6, we read another crazy story, <laughs> like so many others that we've already seen. Paul starts preaching in a, in a third-story room, so he's, you know, up, upstairs, and he just keeps going. Right? He just keeps going and going and going. This is the text that every long-winded preacher throughout history uses to justify their two-hour sermons. Right? Paul did it. So can I. And he preaches well into the night. So much so, <laughs> this is just one of those details that just gets me every time. Luke just feels the need to say that there were many lamps in the room where they were gathered. Yeah, it was dark. And as Paul continues on, this youth named Eutychus is sitting on a windowsill and he falls asleep, he falls out the window, and he dies. Now, how many of you, if you're honest, have ever fallen asleep during a sermon? Yeah. Kids, have you ever fallen asleep in church? Or maybe in school during class? Or what about at bedtime when mom or dad are reading you a story and you just love the story so much, right? And you just want to be able to keep your eyes open and to keep listening, but you just can't do it. And you fall asleep. Well, that's what happens here. And we don't need to assume the worst of poor Eutychus here, right? It doesn't seem like he was being rude or just bored and not paying attention it says that he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So Paul just kept going and going and going, and the poor kid, he was tired, and he fell asleep and out the window. So I remember this one time in college. I was driving home from band rehearsal on the interstate, 
and I fell asleep. And I woke up as I was driving down into the median of the highway, of the interstate. And I was so out of it that I thought I was slamming on the brake and I was slamming on the gas. And eventually, I realized what was going on and I was going fast enough, thankfully, where I just kind of drove out and kept going. But if I had been another 100 yards further up the highway, I would have slammed into an overpass pylon and I would have died. So that's probably my closest near-death encounter that I've ever had. Well, this kid fell asleep and he did die. So what happens? Paul takes a break from preaching. (laughs) I was talking with Dave about this on Thursday, and Dave said that Paul was like, fine, I'll stop preaching to come heal the kid. You know, like it takes that to get him to stop talking. So he takes the youth in his arms, and it says in verse 10 that Paul said, do not be alarmed, for his life is still in him. And it says in verse 12 that he was taken up alive and that the people were not a little comforted, which is just a a way to say that they were greatly comforted. I bet. I bet they were, right? He was dead and now he's alive. So, again, why does Luke tell us this story? Why does he mention these details? Over and over again, Luke is showing the power of Jesus as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's all about Jesus. This same Jesus who died was also raised to new life. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work to spread the gospel and is shown to be real in raising Eutychus from death to life. It's that same power. And so over and over, the readers of Acts are being taught, we're being taught to expect that power to show up as the gospel goes forth. We're being taught to expect the power of Jesus in these miracles to attest to his power and to the spread of the gospel. The gospel will go forth and people will be saved and nothing, not even death, is going to stand in the way. So, the question for us, what are we expecting? Are we, are we expecting anything? When the gospel is proclaimed, do we expect anything to happen? Are we expecting Jesus to show up in power to bring miracles and to bring people from death to life? And I'm not just talking to you, all right? I'm talking to me. <laughs> I'm standing up here in front of you preaching the very word of God. What am I expecting to happen? Anything? Like, do I really believe that Jesus is going to show up and do something this morning? Do I actually believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ still changes hearts and makes ways where there is no way and still knocks people off of their donkeys on their road to Damascus and saves them? And that he might be pleased to do it right now right now. Do you believe that the next conversation that you have with your neighbor about Jesus might be the very moment that God brings them from death to life? Do you actually believe that the prayers that you pray for your kids might be the very means that God uses to save them and to seal them for all of eternity? 
Like, do we actually believe this stuff? Because Luke was there when this kid fell out of the window and the power of Jesus made him alive when he was dead. So did, did you notice that, that, that Luke was there? So he, he changes the voice here. Look at in verse 6. He starts talking in first person as if he's present for these events. He says, we sailed to Troas. And he says, we gathered in the upper room. He saw it with his own two eyes. So we are getting a firsthand witness in this story to the power of Jesus. And Luke, through his incessant writings about the power of Jesus, is shaking us by the shoulders, screaming, Jesus can do it. He will accomplish his purposes. So be bold. Don't stay silent. Look at how the gospel is spreading. Look at the miracles that he is working. No matter what comes your way, Jesus will work. So speak, love, pray. With every word and with every deed, point to Jesus and trust him to bring life. That's what Luke is showing us here. So, so where, are we, where are we doubting this today? Not only do we believe it, but where are we, like in the depths of our hearts, actually doubting this in our lives? Make it personal for you. What situation are you facing that just seems absolutely hopeless right now? Where are you afraid to open your mouth? Where are you tempted to give up believing that God is actually working in your circumstances? Where are you only seeing death when God might intend to bring life? Where has your faith fallen out of a third-story window, as it were, and you just don't see any way to make it alive again? Jesus can. Jesus can. He can do it. It might not be in exactly the way that we want or the way that we think he should do it, right, if we had our own way, but Jesus is always working always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And he has many in this city that do not yet believe. So pray. Pray along with the dad in Mark chapter 9, you remember who, the, whose child had the unclean spirit and he prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. He can do it. He can work for your good. He can save that person. He can bring life. And that's a, that's a really good prayer to pray. <laughs> I believe, help my unbelief. That's really good. Because most of us in this room, we believe, right? We believe. We believe the things that we're reading about in Acts really happened. We do believe that Jesus is still working and that he's still saving today. But we don't believe perfectly and we know it. We know it. There are areas in all of our hearts, in my heart, Chuck's heart, Dave's heart, all of our hearts where we don't believe like we should. Like maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, yeah, I believe all this stuff. I know, I know that that's true, but it's going to be hard. I know Jesus can use my words, but you don't know what it's going to cost me. Speaking might make me lose something. I know Jesus can do it, but is he worth it is he worth it that's a that's a form of of unbelief right so paul sure thinks he's worth it <laughs> 
And that's what we're going to see here in the second point. Jesus is worth it. So let's keep going here. After Eutychus is raised to life by the power of Jesus, Paul sets sail again to a bunch more places, and he eventually lands in Miletus, hoping, the text says, to arrive in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. So Paul knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he has a feeling that this is the beginning of the end. We don't know exactly what he knows, how much he knows about his circumstances, what exactly is going to happen. But I think he knows that he's walking into something really serious in Jerusalem. And he might even know that it's the end of the road for him. So here in Miletus, he assembles the elders of the church from Ephesus, calls them to him, and he addresses them. So let's pick it up in verse 18, and I'm just going to read these next verses so we can see how Paul is viewing his circumstances. Here's verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I wanted to read that whole section to you again to impress upon you how Paul is viewing his current circumstances in life. They're not great circumstances. (laughs) He knows that he isn't going to see any of these brothers again. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. In fact, the only thing that he says that he knows for sure is that the Spirit has told him that in every city there are imprisonments and afflictions awaiting him. Can you imagine that being the only thing that you know for sure about your life? Well, guys, I don't know much for sure, only that everywhere I go, I'm going to be beat and put in jail. Like, that's what you know for sure about your life. And yet, what does he do? He keeps going. He keeps speaking. He keeps proclaiming the gospel like he's been compelled to do by the Spirit. And he says, why? In verse 24. Look at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So where are Paul's priorities? Is he, is he valuing his comfort the most here? <laughs> is he valuing not being beaten again? Is he valuing his wealth or his power or even his very life? No. 
He says, I don't count my life as having any value if only I may finish this work that the Lord has given me to do. And because that's true, he says that he doesn't shrink back from declaring anything that is profitable for them to hear. Indeed, he declared to them the whole counsel of God, no matter the cost, no matter if it was popular to say it or not, no matter if it would result in another beating or another imprisonment, he didn't shrink back. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. See, Paul knows what it's like to experience suffering and consequences for proclaiming the gospel. He knows what it's like. And he says in verse 21 that he proclaimed both to Jews and to Gentiles repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. Proclaiming repentance for sin is not popular. That's not popular to proclaim. It never has been and it never will be. But he did it because Jesus is worth it. He did it because Jesus is worth it. Does anyone else, as they, as they read this, have Philippians chapter 3 ringing in their ears? Because this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I'm really, I'm really afraid that in America, it's almost impossible for us to understand what Paul means here. It's almost impossible. We say, sure, 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 I get it. I get it. Jesus is better than anything else. As we cling to our stuff, in our comfort, in our security, in our suburban affluence. And maybe not with our words, but maybe with our actions, we say, yeah, but surely I'd never really have to lose that thing. Right? And just fill in the blank. Fill in the blank with whatever that thing is. House, relationship with friends or family, job. But Paul says, look, the only thing I know is that the next place I go, I'm going to get beaten to a pulp. <laughs> it's just so foreign to us. Like, that's not our experience. But Paul is just like, fine, it's fine. As long as I complete my ministry that the Lord has given to me and continue to proclaim <clears throat> the whole counsel of God, whether it's popular or not. Budbot family, does this reflect our priorities? Like, really, does it? I know we talk about this every week. What idols are you clinging to? What are your priorities? Where are they out of whack? Where are you worshiping something in your hearts is more important than Jesus? Again and again and again. Well, we do it, number one, because like I said earlier, that is again where the book of Acts has us, and it's again what we're supposed to be considering right now. But also, we do it because it's so easy, and I'm putting myself in this category, it's just so easy to sit there and say, yeah, idols, they're bad. Jesus is worth it no matter the cost, and to not actually specifically apply it to our hearts. It's just easy to do. Like, what is it actually that is keeping you from sharing the love of Jesus with your neighbor? What actually is it that's causing you to respond harshly to your wife and kids? What actually is it that is causing crippling fear in your heart 
as you look at the direction that our country seems to be heading? What is it in your heart that causes you to just doom scroll for hours and hours in the echo chamber that is social media, that only really shows you what they know will already agree with your preconceived notions? That's what social media does. Friends, what is keeping us from actually saying, I count my life as nothing compared to following Jesus? Don't settle for theoretical agreement. We agree with that in theory, but don't settle for that. And don't say to yourself, oh, I'm so glad all these people around me are hearing this. Face what's there. Face what's there. Bring it to Jesus, who we just saw is able to bring new life. He's able to do it. And he's able to give you deep, deep joy in whatever circumstances come your way because you are following him into the unknown. He's able to give you new priorities as you behold more of his glory face to face. He can do that. And he's worth it. And here's some, here's some encouragement for you as you do this heart work. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it alone. In fact, you shouldn't do it alone. And you can't do it alone. <laughs> Look back at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 20. <clears throat> it says, Now from Miletus, Paul sent the, to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So where did Paul live? Among them. So what do we have here? We have a church. We're talking about the church in Ephesus. And Paul says that he lived among them while he was there. And we know from a bit further down in, our, in this passage in verse 31 that he lived among them for about three years. Okay, so Paul was with them for three years serving and loving and doing life with people and testifying to the gospel and grace of the Lord. The church as cliche as it might sound, was doing life together. They were doing life together among one another. So I said at the beginning that I wanted to revisit the riot from last week really quickly <laughs> just to, to draw a contrast from that text to our text. So that's how we're going to kind of land the plane this morning. <clears throat> Look back at chapter 19, verse 32. Chapter 19, verse 32, there's this riot that's going on, <clears throat> and it says, Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So that word assembly, just remember that word assembly, okay? And then again, in verse 40, it says, And when, they had, when he had said these things, the town clerk, he dismissed the assembly. So that word assembly is a really interesting word. The Greek word is ekklesia, and almost every other time it is used in the New Testament, it's referring to a church. A few times, it refers to the universal, the universal church, which is all of believers throughout time and space that are gathered together and assembled before Christ. But most of the time, this word refers to a local assembly of believers gathering, assembling to watch over one another's faith, 
to encourage one another with the word and prayer, to worship together, and to take the Lord's Supper and to do baptism. In other words, this word is the word used in the New Testament for a biblical local church. And then this one time, in Acts 19, it refers to the assembly of a riot. So, so why do I bother to bring this up? Well, there's a few implications. One of them is that a local church is only a church if they gather or assemble together. It's literally the word assembly. So just think about this in regards to the riot last week that just happened in Dave's text. Dave and I were talking about this last week, and he said, just kind of offhanded, huh, how silly would it be to talk about a multi-site riot? I'm serious. <laughs> think back to last summer, to all the, unrest, the, all the unrest that was happening around the country. Think about all the riots that were happening. There was a riot in Minneapolis and a riot in Chicago and a riot in St. Louis. Was that one riot three sites? No. Those were three different riots, three different assemblies. Same word. A local church is a church when they gather or assemble together to do all the things that a church does with elders that shepherd the flock of God that is among them, like it says in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. That's the nature of a biblical church. And that leads us to the second point of why I bring this up. In the assembly of a riot in Acts 19 and in the assembly of local churches throughout the New Testament and in our text, these people are coming together to show what is most important to them. That's what they're doing. They're showing their priorities. So the riot is showing their idolatry. They gather together. They come together because their idols were being threatened. And that showed what was on the throne of their hearts. So why does the church gather? Why does the church assemble? To watch over one another. To commit to doing life together. To do all the things that a local church does together to show the surpassing worth Jesus. To reveal what is actually the most important thing in all of the universe. Not any other idol or any false functional God, but Christ crucified and risen. So Paul gathers the elders of the Ephesian church, and it says in verse 17, the word church is the same word, assembly. And he says to these local church elders, I lived among you, we did life together and while I was among you, what types of things did I do? I served the Lord with all humility. I testified to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I declared the whole counsel of God to you, not shrinking back from anything that was profitable. Nothing. In other words, Paul revealed the priorities of the kingdom of God in the assembly of God's people. He revealed the priorities of the kingdom of God in the assembly of God's people. What a stark contrast between these two assemblies, right? One group in Acts 19 gathering together to riot, to not protect their idols, to protect their idols, to go against God and the gospel of Christ. And then there's this other assembly in chapter 20, the church in Ephesus. And they, they gather to proclaim the gospel, to fight against their idols, and to preach repentance and faith in Christ to one another. What a difference. 
What a difference. So my prayer, and the prayer of your elders here at the South Campus, is that we would be that kind of church. That we would be that kind of church. We as elders, we want to live among you, and we want you to live among one another. We want you to encourage one another and to not shrink back from declaring to each other everything that is profitable. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We want this church, this South Church, to be a place where we help each other to have priorities that are in line with reality. In line with reality. Jesus is the greatest treasure, and he is worth any hardship or persecution or anything that comes our way. He's worth it. And he is able to turn death into life. He can do that. And in contrast to the gathering of that idolatrous riot that we saw in chapter 19, this community, this gathering of the church, is the assembly that we want to be a part of. That's the assembly that we want to be a part of. Friends, we need each other in the church. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. No one can do it alone. So let's be the type of place that gathers together, that assembles to show totally different priorities than the world. Totally different. They would look at us and say, those Christians are crazy. Like we saw the craziest thing in the book of Acts is that these people are actually living it out in the midst of persecution. That's what we want the world to say when they look at us. We count comfort and security and wealth and all the things of this world, as good as they might be in and of themselves, as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If only we might finish the race that is set before us and see Jesus face to face on that day and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we want. And we want to bring as many people along with us as possible, no matter the cost. Those are the kingdom priorities of a church, an assembly of people that really believes Jesus can do it and Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we need your spirit to help us reflect those priorities. There are areas in all of our hearts where we doubt, where we look at circumstances and we're not sure that there can be any breakthrough or we're not sure that anything can, can happen. And there are areas where we consider the cost and we're not sure that it's worth it. So by your spirit right now, remind us that it is. It is worth it. Jesus is the greatest treasure. Jesus is the one who we will be with for all of eternity. No more tears, no more pain, no more sin. Fix our eyes on that goal and help us to proclaim he is able and he is worth it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.